Good to see everybody, and man, I hope you had a great week. Have you ever been to a big-time college football game? Cindy and I have been to a lot of those, and maybe a few of you have been to an NFL game. Hopefully not the Cowboys this past year. I, we ain't even won a playoff game. I mean, a, a preseason game. Shoot. This week, I got to fly home with Emmett Smith sitting across from me on American Airlines, and I just said, man, I wish you still played. <laughs> he looked great. Well, if you were up in the nosebleed section watching, no doubt you probably thought to yourself, it sure would be cool if I could get down to the 50-yard line and maybe just a couple of rows back from the field. Boy, that'd be great. However, even if you were able to move down from the upper level to the 50-yard line, you're still sitting in the stadium. You're not in the game. You might have a better vantage point of the players on the field, but there's nothing like the excitement of being on the field and in the game. You know, you can stay really safe up in the stands, or you can get in the game where something wonderful can happen to you. Now, if you sit in the stands, it's reasonably safe. Nobody will hit you. Nobody will, will uh, slap you down. Nobody will tackle you. You won't get a bruise. You probably won't get cut. You won't get a concussion, but you won't score a touchdown. You won't rip the ball out of the opposing team and create a turnover. You won't stop the play of the offense and save the day. You won't catch a 40-yard pass that sets up a touchdown. It'll never happen. You'll just get more calluses on two cheeks and and watch. But the real fun, the real glory is being in the game. You know, it's kind of strange, but no little child ever grows up dreaming in any culture, in any nationality, in any race, in any socioeconomic group. No kid grows up dreaming, man, I'm going to become a great spectator. My heart's passion is to become a tremendous watcher of television. No, 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 no. You were made to be in the game. And our heart's cry is, put me in the game. So it's kind of ironic that the biggest game of the year in America, the Super Bowl, consists of over one billion Cheetos-eating, lazy boy-sitting couch potatoes who desperately need exercise, watching 11 men run on a football field, who desperately need rest. God did not create anybody to sit on the bench of life. God made you for a purpose. So today we're going to learn together from Jesus what He wants from every single one of us. And this is kind of an everybody is needed message so that every one of us can know the joy of actually getting in the game. So let's look at a story Jesus told about the kingdom of God in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. He says, the kingdom of God is exactly like the man going away on a trip who summoned his own servants, or slaves, the actual word is, and turned over his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his unique ability. Then he went away on a trip. Immediately, the servant who had received five talents moved out, went to work, and won five more. In the same way, the guy with two talents went out, won two more. But the servant who had received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, 
and buried his Lord's money. Now, that story begins with incredible good news. The master calls in these guys who are actually slaves. That means they have no money of their own. They own no property. They have no career. There are no prospects for them. But he says, I'm going to give you an opportunity of a lifetime, unbelievable opportunity. Now, what would strike the listeners first in this story is the enormity of the money being given by the master to these slaves. A talent was the largest unit of accounting in Greek financial transactions. A talent was worth about 10,000 denarii. A denarii was what the average person earned in a day. So if your salary was $50,000 a year, that would equal about $1,000 a week or $200 a day. So $200 a day times 10,000 equal 2 million. So this is the story of a slave who wins the lottery. This would be like a profit-sharing venture where the slave gets to share in the gains he makes with the master's money. So it's a a once-in-a-lifetime deal, and this is a staggeringly generous master. So this story starts with grace. I mean, they didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. The master initiates this grace to these slaves. And that means I want to ask the first question this morning. We know what they were given. What have you been given? I wrote down a few things. How about for starters, life? You're breathing. You're alive. How much is that worth? Talk to some of our friends struggling with stage four cancer that's terminal, that has not responded to chemo or treatment or prayer or radiation, and who have only months to live. Ask them, what would your life be worth? Give you perspective. Then you've got talents. There are some things you can do, and you can do very well. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's writing music. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's administration. Maybe it's relating well to other people. Maybe it's leading. These are all gifts from God. Then you have a body. You have a level of mental health. You have reasonable sanity. You're in touch with reality, I hope. And then you have experiences, you know, what you've learned so far in your lifetime. And then you've got financial resources. And we should say for all of us, a whole lot compared to the rest of the world living on a dollar to two dollars a day. If you live on welfare, you live better than three-fourths of the world around you. Are you aware of that? That's kind of a funny thing. You also have wounds. Everybody does. And it's funny that God often uses our wounds even more than our strengths. Sometimes it's people who have lost a child or wrestled through an addiction or gone through a divorce are suffered with deep depression who are best able to help other people who are now in the same situation. Who do you want to help you? Somebody who's been there and done it and succeeded? Or just somebody patronizing you that doesn't even know what it feels like? God never wastes a wound. Then you've got education. You've got friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got forgiveness of sin. You've got eternal life because the Jesus who's telling this story died for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised from the dead for our eternal hope. So what has God given you? Well, brother, a whole lot. Then the question becomes, what will I do with what I have been given? Well, the word Jesus uses to describe the master's generosity in our story is he entrusts 
He's entrusting what's his to someone else. Whatever the Lord gives you now, He will ask you about later. My mind, my body, my imagination, my sexuality, my stuff, my time, my talent, my treasure, whatever the Lord gives you now, He will ask you about later. So the master gives his servants all of his money. And notice the instructions he gives to the servants. Well, you'll notice there aren't any. He doesn't say start this business, invest in that stock or this fund. He gives these guys tremendous latitude and freedom. He's basically saying, hey, I want you to exercise initiative. You take responsibility. You create. You dream. You dare. You try. You risk. Come on, I put my DNA in you. I'm a creative God. You're not a white-tailed deer or a rabbit crawling in the field. You can create. You can think. You can reason. Put my talent to use. Put my money to use. Do something with it. I'll leave it up to you to initiate how you want to do it. Now, apparently, the master doesn't want to just use these slaves to grow his money, but he's using his money to grow them. So apparently, God wants you to dream about how you can serve him in the kingdom. So these three servants get this incredible opportunity of a lifetime. Two of them go to bed that night, their heads are racing about what they're going to do, what the possibilities are, what they may try. They can't stop dreaming about this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Jesus said the first servant moved out immediately, went to work, and won five more talents. Three verbs. Went immediately, went to work, and won five more. So he can't wait. He's afraid the master might change his mind. He's going to seize the day, seize the opportunity. No procrastination, no holding back. No, I want to be sure it's safe. He jumps at the opportunity. The second servant does the same thing. But the third servant, when he goes to bed that night, his mind is not racing. The next morning when he got up, Jesus said he went away, he dug a hole, he buried the money. And watch this. From that day till the master returned, his life was not one single bit different than it had been before this amazing gift. The amazing gift didn't prompt any dreams, any dares, any risks. It didn't change him at all. Churches talk about the sin of commission all the time. What you ought not do. Bad, bad, naughty, naughty. Don't do this. Don't do that. But in the Bible, the most serious sins are the sins of omission. Things I don't do. The love I don't offer. The wounds that I don't care about. The words I don't say. The servanthood I don't give. The gratitude I don't express the risks I refuse to take. So the sin of this third servant is not what he did. It's what he didn't do. He didn't make his life a bold adventure of faithfulness to this incredible God. He didn't say yes to this divine invitation. Every morning he woke up, he was sitting on a treasure that belonged to his master. Every morning was a new opportunity to put that master's treasure to use. And every morning he just said, nope, I think I'll keep it buried another day. Nope, I don't think I'll do anything for the master who gave me everything. When people come to church, 
redeemed by the blood and the death of a God creator who became a man and rose from the dead to defeat Satan, to defeat death, hell, and the grave. And we sit around, eat nachos, and come twice a month and look around and just go back home and bury our treasure and dig a hole. And our lives aren't any different because of this incredible God who gave me His Spirit, who gave me creative ability, who gave me wisdom through His Word, who gave me life potential to make a difference, and I just suck. That's right. Suck it up. That's exactly right. Look in the mirror and say, you are boring. You. <laughs> Let me tell you a telling phrase for what life can sink into. You've heard it. I bet you've used it. It's called the same old, same old. Day after day after day, you wake up at the same old time, get out of the same old bed, go to the same old bathroom, look in the same old mirror, shave the same old face, take the same old shower, dry off with the same old towel, walk into the same old kitchen, pour the same old cereal into the same old bowl, kiss the same old wife on the same old cheek, get in the same old car, drive off to the same old job, sit in the same old chair, listen to the same old boss, tell the same old jokes, laugh in the same old way, clock out at the same old time, get back in the same old car, drive down the same old road to the same old house, go through the same old door, eat the same old supper, fall asleep in the same old chair, watching the same old news, get up, get in the same old bed, ask your wife the same old question, get the same old answer, roll over, go back to sleep, and that's it from day to the next day, same old, same old. <laughs> you ain't going to hear this anywhere else, all right. So for years, these servants did the same old task in the same old order with the same old results until one day the master interrupted their lives with this explosive gift of grace. And for two of them, they realized we ain't never going back to same old, same old again. Which leads to the next question, which is quite personal for all of us. What do you dream about doing? What do you dream about doing for this God who gave you everything? Is there anything you could do that might stir you to stay awake, to stay engaged that you dream about doing? Maybe encourage some lonely person at work. Maybe adopt a child so their existence could change forever, and we have many in here who have. Maybe help people fighting to reconcile. You could fight sex trafficking. God doesn't want that to happen to a human being. Maybe befriend a widow. Start a small group. Help an orphanage. Help an unwed teenage mom. Maybe use your musical or technical skills to help people worship God in a creative, expressive way. Help fund a major project around your church. And hey, it doesn't have to be flashy or look impressive. What matters is not my capacity for achievement. What matters is my capacity for God. I say that because in America, we live in a performance-oriented, achievement-idolizing part of the world. What matters is not your capacity for achievement. It's your capacity for God. When I have money and I give some away, I grow in my capacity for God and to trust Him as my resource. When I'm worried and concerned and I read the 23rd Psalm, I'm growing in my capacity for the Lord to let me experience Him as the Good Shepherd 
who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, who guards me. And that leads to the next question. What could keep me from becoming a good and faithful servant? Because that's what the master calls two of these guys out of three, good and faithful servants. Now, you may never have heard this before. Faithfulness is not maintaining. Faithfulness is increasing. Each of the two servants said, you gave me five talents, I got ten. You gave me two talents, I got four. I multiplied what you gave me. Not the same, but I multiplied it. He called them faithful servants. The guy that didn't lose any money, didn't get drunk, didn't commit adultery, didn't get on drugs, didn't lose any money, but didn't do anything with it, he calls wicked and slothful and unproductive. Wow. I don't want to be in that category. I don't. So, what could keep you from being called good and faithful? This third servant has a problem, but it's not greed. It's fear. He's afraid the master is a hard man. He's afraid to take a risk. He's afraid he might fail. What will people say? She might turn me down if I asked her out. On the other hand, she might say, yeah, she might be desperate. Ask her. <laughs> now, this parable is often taught as a parable about stewardship. I was raised on it. But it's not mostly about stewardship. It's about risk. This is a guy afraid to take a risk. I might fail. God might not come through. I tell you, we came here to start this church with two little girls, a U-Haul trailer, and the money from the sale of our house. And I'm going to tell you, nobody said, we'll pay your way, we'll pay your expenses, we'll guarantee you a salary. This was a risk-taking adventure to come here and start Summit. And I'm telling you this, that's why I have very little patience for a bunch of thumb-sucking, Maalox-drinking, fear-minded people who are afraid they can't trust God with their money, afraid they can't trust God with a career, afraid they can't trust God with anything. That's terrible. If you want to do anything significant for God, you have to take a risk. And you have to face fear. And God said, I've never given you a spirit of fear a day in your life. That came straight from hell. You spit right in the face of fear. Let's find out if God is God or not. Might as well find out early than later. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to start a business. The economy's kind of soft. I'm afraid to buy a home. What if I lose my job? What if the economy goes? Well, what if you get a lump the next morning and the doctor says, it's spread everywhere. I'm afraid we can't even do anything for you. You got more of a chance to get hit by a car getting out of the Summit parking lot than you do failing to buy a house. But those are things that are always out there. What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? Well, what if you succeed? You'll never know if you don't take a risk. Everything we've ever done from the day we rented a building, which was a hotel ballroom, till the next day we rented a, a, a school, Churchill High School, to the time we signed a five-year lease, which was big money at the time, uh, on a flea market over on Bandera Road. Jim, you remember that? Ugly-looking thing, but it would hold, it was $5,000 a month, and I wondered, dear Jesus, will we ever pay for it? Will anybody even come over there? Then we bought the property down here on 281. We paid that off. Then we bought 60. Every time it was a risk. I'd rather try and fail than fail to try. At least God says, I will uphold you. If you fall seven times, I'll lift you up. We wouldn't have anything if I'd had answered my fear. And if I'd have listened to believers, we wouldn't be here today. 
What's holding you back? No answers. There's a striking contrast in describing the behavior of the third servant versus the other two. Jesus said the first two servants went out. They went out to get something done, proactive, aggressive, in the game. The third one went away. The first two servants went to work. The third servant dug a hole. The first two servants won more than the master gave them. The third guy hid his talent. Notice the language Jesus uses for this third guy. He goes away, he digs a hole, he hides his talent. Let me give you a little background. There was a religious community in ancient Israel called the Qumran community. The Dead Sea Scrolls were actually kept by them. These are believers. They gave up on the world. They isolated themselves. They withdrew. Notice, they went away. They withdrew from society. They dug a hole. That community actually burrowed into caves. We got the Dead Sea Scrolls from those same caves they lived in. They hid their talent. They knew the Scriptures really well, but they didn't offer those gifts to the world around them, not to other Israelites, not to the Romans, not to the Samaritans. Nope. They just hid them. They thought they were winning. Jesus thought they were a total disaster. They thought they were honoring God. Jesus said, you're doing the exact opposite of what I want. See, it's possible for the church to lose its mission. Let me compare that to a library. The purpose of a library is to get books out of the library into the hands of people, make them accessible to people. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, and get them into people's hands and get them into people's minds. But a strange thing happens. Sometimes it's as if the librarians get together on Monday morning before the library opens and decide that when people come into the library, the people are actually the problem because they take books off the shelf. They get them out of order. They don't revere the Dewey Decimal System. They cause more work to keep things tidy and neat. It's almost as if the librarians don't want people in the library. But the whole purpose of a library is to get books out of the library. And the measure of a good library is not how neat the shelves of books are, it's how literate, how well read the people are. So Jesus is saying, church, I didn't give you this treasure of grace for you to keep it in a hole and live life for yourself. Uh, It's going to get worse. Hold on. Pretend we're in a locker room right now. We really are. It's a spiritual locker room, the Summit Spiritual Locker Room. Locker room talks by coaches are very important. They can be very inspirational. We gather every week in here in the Summit Locker Room. But remember, the locker room is not where the game is played. The game is actually played on the field, in the world. Now, imagine how stupid it would be if a team said, We're declaring ourselves winner of the Super Bowl because we had a great locker room meeting. We love the locker room. It's high tech. We got all fired up in the locker room. The music was terrific in the locker room. And the lockers, oh, they're superb. We even have a coffee shop in our locker room. And we're having more and more people come to our locker room. But folks, it doesn't matter how many people are in the locker room. You never win a game in the locker room. You win the game on the field. 
So the measure of our church or any church is not what happens when our church is in the church. It's what happens when our church gets out of the church and into the world. That's the game. I mean, the world could care less how good our locker rooms meetings are. They're not even there. But when people get loved, when the presence of Jesus gets released into our world, into your school, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your office, when homeless people get something to eat, when resources get shared instead of hoarded, when promises get kept, when people in jail who are forgotten have somebody visit or pray for them, when veterans aren't shoved into a corner and forgotten someplace, when marriages are made healthy and strong, when people work for their boss as though they're working unto the Lord, when orphan children in Uganda get food, clothing, and shelter from the chosen offerings and medical care in Jesus' name, when prayers are bold and faith is strong and Jesus is lifted up and up there comes down here on earth, that's when our church is doing really, really good. That's why we're here. It's not to take what God's given us and put it in a hole and live life for me. Even God could care less about our locker room meetings. It's what happens in the world He loves so much that He gave His only begotten Son to live for. Well, think about this. Think about our American culture and the church today, even in our own city, about digging a hole, burying your treasure. I have refused since the day we started this church to let anybody paint me in a corner. Jesus says, go into all the world. I will go anywhere at any time and bring good news to any group anywhere. And I don't care who doesn't like it. And you know why they don't, why guys won't do it? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. Jesus went to everybody. The, who got mad at him? The religious bloggers got mad at him, the Pharisees. He eats and drinks with sinners. I'll go give good news to anybody. I don't care if you're a drug cartel. I don't care if you're a stripper in some club and you've come down with some sexually transmitted disease and you need prayer and you're embarrassed. I'll go see you. I'll pray for you. I'm not ashamed to have you here. I want you here. This is a, this is a place of inclusion, not exclusion. Why don't the white guys preach that? Afraid the right-wing heavy supporter, well-funded guys won't support them. Why don't the African-American pastors that have an all-black church make it inclusive because they're afraid of the power structure in that church that'll vote them out? It's always fear. It's never theology. It's always stinking fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear I'll get fired, fear uh, uh, people won't like me and will leave me, and what'll I do? I don't give a flip what you do. You don't hold my future. God holds my future. And if it's truth, it ought to be truth expressed. I, my life has been made larger and better with African-American friends that I would give my life for. There are Hispanic women and men in here that are so precious to me, and you've spiced up my life, my boring white life, so good. Your talent, your gifts, your resources, your encouragement, your servanthood, make life worth living. Can you imagine that I would allow myself to dig a hole and say, well, you're only welcome in my hole if you, if you believe uh, this about the rapture, or you believe this about the end times, or you believe this about tongues, or you believe this about whatever. This is a Jesus church. This is an inclusive place. This is not about issues, and it's not about politics. And wherever it puts me, 
If I'm, if I'm elected as a Democratic senator from Texas and a Republicans sponsor a bill that's a true bill, that's a good bill for everybody, I'll vote for it. But guess who will kill me? My other Democrats. And if I'm a Republican and the Democrats have a good bill and have a good case and that one is good, I'm for it. Okay, but I'll be rejected by the Republicans because here's what they demand. Just like Baptists, just like Methodists, just like Catholics, like Presbyterians, they demand you accept everything or nothing or you can't fit. How stupid. You mean to tell me if you're wrong, I can't say you're wrong? If I've got clear Scripture and you're on the wrong side, but you're afraid because your Democrat constituency or Republican constituency will ostracize you, see, it's not about truth. It's about fear. That's about time somebody could say, there are some things worth being rejected for. There are some things worth dying for. Not a lot, but some things for crying out loud. Are you going to be bought and paid for by some group? Don't give up your brain. You think, and you reason, and you side with truth, and wherever that puts you, it puts you. If it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't care what political party you're in. So I'm not going to dig a hole and bury my talent in a denominational hole or in a political hole. I'm open to everybody. I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are. I'm glad to give you good news anywhere, anytime. And I want to be a friend to everybody where at least they trust you and you have some impact or influence with them. You can't do that if you're in a hole. Last question. What do I want to hear from God when my life is over? And nobody else can do this but you. The problem with this third sermon is he had all kinds of excuses and reasons that he never invested his life for the master. I was afraid. I knew you were a hard guy. I was tired. You know, I… Excuses. Excuses are the crutches of the uncommitted. Always an excuse. This is your one and only life, folks. I mean, this is it. So what's the next step you need to take to get in the game? God's a dream giver. He says in the book of Joel that when His Spirit comes on people, one of the signs is that old people will dream dreams. Really? Welcome to America, Holy Spirit. We ain't seeing a whole lot of that. I'm a dreamer. I think of things that never were and say, why not? George Bernal Shaw made that quote famous. A lot of people have used it. Some men see things as they are and say, why? And some people see things that are not and say, why not? Let's go for it. God's a dream-giving God. You don't sit back because you're old. I dream. We've got unfinished business, unfulfilled dreams on our property and land and with our children and with the school and with that $6 million gym that will open us up to the whole community and create revenue for the kingdom of God and give us influence and outreach with three NBA basketball courts in it as well as uh, offices and facilities. My head spins with what's out there. And it's all we can do to get, I'm making these names up, Fred up out of bed and come to church. Wonder if my social security check came today. <laughs> Shoot. I'm a dreamer. And then look what he says about young people. He says he will give old men dreams and young men and women visions. What's your visions, young people? For crying out loud. Or hang out in a bar, smoke dope, and how many people can you sleep with? Dear God. Even that can get boring. There's no future. Don't waste this one and only life. Get a vision for something great. Ask God, help me to know how to serve you. 
Help me to have a dream to make my life more than my life. And maybe you have a dream, but you've been chicken. You've been afraid to go for it. Maybe it's time to ask God for some courage where you actually take a risk. What if we became known as a place where everybody in our church who claims to love and follow Jesus said, God, I'm willing to risk it all if you ask me to. You've been so generous to give to me. I want to do something generous, loving, humble, and good for you and for the kingdom. And what if every one of us was to hear one day, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. How can you get a better reward than that? Then the creator who made you says, Becky, good girl. You did what I made you to do. He didn't make you to be Joyce Meyer. He didn't make you to be anybody else. You did what I, you produced a couple of good kids out there that I'm going to use in a significant way. You kept your husband out of bed with another woman. You love me. You can cut this any way you want, but you have a purpose. And I'm telling you, don't you shortchange yourself because it's not ostentatious like that. All you want to hear from the Lord is, you did good. Good and faithful. Sir. I gave you a little bit. You definitely multiplied that. Now, you don't compare yourself to anybody else, but here's what you gave me, and here's what I'm giving you, Lord. I don't know how I stack up, but I, I'm giving you back more than you gave me because I'm so grateful. And that's all He asked you to do. What's going to be your? What's going to be your deal? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. How much is that? I hope God makes that so for you and for me because it drives me. Now, I'm in the ministry, but if I were in business, I'm still in the kingdom. I'm still serving. I'm supporting my, my church, my spiritual family. I have resources. I have time. I have talent. I have treasure. I'm going to use it to make a difference. I'm, I have to use what I have to try to make a difference as well. But from the day we started in a little $150 rent room in the Marriott Hotel down near the airport at the time to today, we've multiplied what God gave us. We definitely have used it faithfully and well. We've gone through hard times. It's been close and touchy. There have been, oh, whoa, 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 but that's life. But God is faithful, and He's never failed us one time. Scared the tar out of us a few times, but never failed us, and He won't fail you. But he can't do a thing for you if you just stay in a boat. Sometimes you just have to walk on the water and trust God. And if it's right, go for it. And if you run for public office and you don't get elected, you didn't fail. You didn't get elected. But you learned. You developed a wider sphere of people and influence and impact. You became better known. God will use that. If you started a business and the economy, not you, took it under, you didn't lose. You didn't fail. The business failed, but you didn't fail. You've got wisdom. You've got experience from that. It's all useful in the kingdom of God. God redeems everything. He's a redeemer. So what are you afraid of? Get your ugly self out there and get plugged in. Get on a table. Sign up. Put an offering in there. We have people that are far from God or people who had bad experiences come here and say, I loved it. I love the openness. I love the transparency. Man, that was really great. And I said, well, why don't you keep coming and why don't you support us? I said, all the company-owned churches, they have financial support. They have people support. And if we're going to drive them out of business and set people free and give a gospel that's to everybody everywhere, show up and help me. You just stay home and hang out in the bar, but you sure loved it. Sure was good. I felt good about my future, Rick. Yeah, thank you. You can do a lot with, yeah, that pays bills, doesn't it? Pays staff, builds new buildings, 
outreaches, clothes the poor, puts backpacks on the kids. Yeah, right. No. Show up. Stand up for what you think is a good thing and support it. Throw your heart, your time, your talent, your treasure into it. And if you're not serving someone, you get hooked up out there. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life for many. Serving and giving is the kingdom of God. And if you're not, here's all I can say to you. Jesus will ask you about that. Good luck. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.